passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Marin Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. And Wisdom Dumans, the co-author of the compelling report, Flexibility for All, Pursuing Socially Inclusive Demand-Side Flexibility in Europe. Coming from distinct yet complementary backgrounds, Sophie is in energy law, policy, clean tech and innovation, and Louise in energy justice and policy development, they bring a unique and synergistic perspective to the table. Their collaboration sheds light on how demand-side flexibility can not only advance Europe's energy transition, but do so in a way that includes and benefits everyone, especially the most vulnerable. This episode will delve into the heart of socially inclusive energy solutions guided by two of the most forward-thinking minds in the field. Uh, Louise, Sophie, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Your expertise has shaped energy policy at the highest level, and I'm really delighted. So thank you and welcome to Energetic. Thanks, Marie. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Okay, so in your report called uh, Flexibility for Pursuing Socially Inclusive Demand-Side Flexibility in Europe, I'm sure you didn't plan for it to be pronounced by anyone, like in the podcast. Uh, you have managed to integrate two different backgrounds and mindsets. Um, it must have presented unique challenges, especially in addressing those so complex issues like energy justice and the impact of policy and technical choices on everyday people. So what is like your backgrounds in detail? How did you navigate your differing do different backgrounds and viewpoints to really enrich this conversation on demand side flexibility. So I came to the to the subject of inclusive demand side flexibility very much from the energy system perspective. Um, so we've approached this from different sides of the coin. So and it might help if I just really quickly explain what demand side flexibility is. I know that you've had. Yarp and Luca on the podcast talking about smart charging, EV smart charging, which is a really great example of demand side flexibility. Um, so demand side flexibility is the ability of customers, energy customers, to choose when they draw energy from the power grid, um, responding to some kind of price signal or another incentive. So we've all got in our homes, when we use energy, we've got flexible, so non-time critical demand and time critical inflexible demand so when I wake up in the morning I want my coffee immediately I've got two children under six and I need my coffee that's not flexible but when my coffee maker actually draws the power from the grid to make the coffee it doesn't really matter to me they've got a little jug that keeps it warm so I just as long as I've got it when I want it same as my dishwasher as long as the dishes are clean when I need them it doesn't really matter to me when the the dishwasher is actually turning on. So that's a good example of where how we can separate when we draw power from the grid to when we actually need it. Because really we, we what we need is for the things in our home to be available when, when we want them. And from an energy system perspective, because we have lots of intermittent renewable energy, which means it works when the, when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, the grid is flooded with all this really low cost, renewable, clean energy. But what, what was shocking to me when I first joined the energy policy world, you know, 17 years ago is that we are 
not only do we still have fossil fuel generation, but we're still subsidizing fossil generation to this day because we have a timing problem. Because when the renewable energy is um, plentiful on the grid, isn't necessarily when most people are using energy. And so when we have these cold, still periods where people are using energy, particularly in the evenings, we then pay fossil generators who are increasingly not being used very much. So they have to be subsidized to be kept there in the market to come on the standby, which means we're, as customers, we're paying double because we're paying for all this amazing renewable generation, um, but we're wasting it a lot of the time um, because we're not matching our demand to that generation. And then we're then subsidizing fossil generation, which is stopping us from getting to net zero. And on top of that, the grid is like a motorway or a highway at peak time. Everyone's using it at the same time, which means we need to keep building out more and more of the highway of the electricity system when actually we could be saving lots of money by using it in a more efficient way. So it wasn't from the customer perspective. Um, but when I first found out about demand side flexibility, it was actually because I was working in project financing for renewable generators. And I was realising that these costs, these called imbalance costs, were really racking up the price of renewable energy. So when energy suppliers want to buy green energy to sell to us, they have to pay this huge surplus for um, uh, imbalance risk, which means that they might buy this energy, but the customers might not be using it at the times when that renewable energy is actually generating. And so demand side flexibility is when we pay customers either directly through um, the grid operators paying customers through people called aggregators who collect lots and lots of customer flexibility and they sell it as a service, sort of like a, a virtual power station. That's called explicit demand side flexibility. So it's a flexibility market, it's a services. Um, but most people in households, they engage in flexibility through their energy tariffs. So their energy supplier or another energy service provider will give them a cheaper rate of energy or some kind of cashback or financial savings if they use um, energy in a more efficient way way that's more efficient for the grid uh, and I actually became a general counsel for an energy startup that was engaging you know a long time ago in demand side flexibility terms 10 years ago um, and I thought at the time we're not even going to need a sales team because this is going to sell itself because it's saving the planet it's saving people energy it saves people energy in two ways firstly because the more people engage in flexibility the lower the cost of flexibility and secondly um Directly, people save money on their bills, um, but then I discovered that actually that direct saving is much more difficult to for people to access, um, and yeah. that's how we came to inclusive inclusivity. Yeah, that's uh, where uh, Louis' expertise come to the table, really, like uh, this kind of reality check that uh, the demand side flexibility. So, as you said, it's about making the most out of the, let's say, renewable assets that we have and making sure that people use them at the same moment where they are available and making sure that they shift part of their consumption when actually there is abundant, as you say, decarbonized grid and so on. But Louise came with her background in uh, energy justice and addressing energy poverty. So Louise, you, you come with a kind of reality check for this very rosy picture that our, our idea, uh, Sophie, uh, would have had. So, Louise, what are really the hurdles with demand side flexibility? Why, why isn't it taking off? 
Yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and and um, I think I think you're right. I kind of came with this very simple question, really, which was I was noticing some people were getting uh, paid to move their energy demand. So I noticed some people, particularly electric car drivers, were were able to access these tariffs where they were getting incredibly incredibly low rates of electricity, particularly overnight. At some times, they were even being paid to charge their cars up. And so obviously, from the energy poverty, energy justice point of view, I'm thinking, oh, there's some che- cheap electricity going. Why are we not managing to give that cheap electricity or, or free electricity to the people that really need it most. And so it was with, with this very, very sort of simple question um, that I sort of entered this subject. And of course, you know, there are there are lots of reasons why um, we weren't, you know, managing to prioritise lower income households for this cheap electricity. And as I started to sort of ask this simple question, um, I, I, I received from all the stakeholders I was talking to some of, some of the big challenges and the big the big barriers. I think, you know, probably um, the first one is that, that, that I was told is that, you know, come on now, people, householders, they nobody wants to be switching things on and off, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and ironing your clothes or turning on the dishwasher, particularly people. People, don't want that. No. And particularly people with, you know, uh, maybe two jobs, a few children, uh, you know, quite complex, busy lives. This is just really not something we ought to be burdening people with. And, and that was obviously something very serious and, and we internalised. I think the second thing that I was told was that um, the way that people are rewarded for, for this uh, moving your energy is generally through these tariffs, through, through electricity prices that change during the day. And that can be risky. Um, so when we're used to having just one electricity price for every kilowatt we use, whenever we use that during the day or even the week and the month, moving to an electricity tariff, which when it's not predictable how much you're going to be spending, that's inherently risky. And for people who really can't afford to take those risks with their household bills, this was the other sort of pushback, almost the challenge that we were given to say, you know, this is just not going to, the way it's done now, it's not going to work um, for lower income households. So first, it's annoying. And second, <laughs> it's uh, it's really this kind of uh, aversion to risk that is inherently human. It's not only about uh, people who are vulnerable or energy poor, but it's like for everyone, when you have the guarantee that some, something will will be a certain price, it's, uh, it can be confusing you know, to have uh, to to have like a lot of uncertainties. And I know that in many European countries, it's also a question of availability. It's not really available. Those kind of tariffs are not really available. And there are also a lot of, um, yeah, sometimes bad press about those kind of prices. I mean, I remember a few years ago, back in 2021, uh, there was a huge uh, cold snap in the in Texas. Uh, there was an, And there was um, some articles uh, that also crossed the Atlantic and came to Europe about the fact that some people ended up paying enormous uh, bills for a very short period of time because they were unflexible. Sorry. So I imagine that was a terrible publicity uh, for for the kind of demand side response. So how did you really build on each other's experience? Like one overly, maybe over, a little bit overly enthusiastic and very tech oriented and legal oriented. And the other one maybe a little bit pessimistic. I, I mean, you've you've worked together for, for many years, but you have just kind of very two different backgrounds as well and I mean you're you're quite a band and you it's also the second report that you write on flexibility the other one was the joy of flex I mean the name was much easier to pronounce I must say uh, but um yeah it was um somehow it was this one comes a little bit as more as a as a reality check about uh can can flexibility can actually can it be joyful and how do you make sure that 
happen in and so I'm also interested in like the creative process that you that you decided to start uh, and to implement together. So uh, how do you create this kind of space where you could honestly open sh and share some doubts and and questions? Because you are both policy advisors, so somehow you also need to be very productive but constructive. Yes, and now I'm thinking that we should have given this paper a more punchy title. <laughs> but we so the paper is called Flex. Ability for all, not just because we can't start flexibility, but because it's the ability, the ability to flex. It, it we, it's the missing piece for us. Um, and as you say, there are some sort of basic enabling features of flexibility uh, which aren't available to lots of households across Europe and so Louise's you know I would say realism rather than pessimism <laughs> um, reality check is very valid because um, it requires in order to engage in flexibility you need a smart meter um, a lot of the time I mean technically you don't always need a smart meter but a smart meter definitely helps um, you it really helps to have an energy efficient house and what happened in Texas um, is the homes there just weren't designed for minus 20 degrees Celsius temperatures they were designed for a different climate and not actually it's a really important point that you raise Marina is as we have more extreme temperatures and more unpredictable weather energy efficiency and demand side flexibility actually go hand in hand because the more energy efficient your house the better insulation you have the more able you are to retain that heat all that um Um, cooling elements of air conditioning if you live somewhere very hot um, and able to keep your ambient temperature at a safe condition and also if you have those smart controls you can kind of share the flexible assets so if you live in a housing block and some of you have energy efficiency some of you have solar panels some of you might have a battery you can all sort of band together to retain the safe temperatures and actually to help the grid to keep the lights on so there was texas but also the um, polar vortex in New York they used demand side flexibility to keep the lights on to keep as many people safe and also so that you can direct where the energy really needs to go to the, the hospitals and the really the schools the essential places where people are gathering to stay warm so flexibility is an essential part of resilience adaptation and particularly the people in the most vulnerable positions also in the worst housing so Louise has an energy efficiency background and that really helps um, to educate me because it's sort of a no-brainer in energy efficiency policy that you don't just keep subsidizing people's bills, which ultimately go into energy companies. You actually give people the tools and the equipment to help lower their own bills by reducing their own energy demand on an enduring basis. And so um, Together, we try to apply the same logic to flexibility, like instead of just subsidizing bills through price caps. And in Texas, it would have helped if there had been some kind of price protection. Um, just because you have a dynamic time-varying tariff doesn't mean there shouldn't be a price cap. For example, the Octopus Agile Tariff in the UK has a price cap, so the price can't go over a certain um, rate, um, just as the extra protection. 
but it doesn't mean there shouldn't be safeguards. There are regulatory policy safeguards that you can have like something called a circuit breaker, which means that the sort of market stops functioning when prices get to a certain point. If there's an extreme situation like the invasion of Ukraine or a polar vortex or something like that. But this notion of empowering rather than just protecting and enabling people to be part of this future smart energy system and have all the benefits of it was really the core of trying to produce a positive vision. Yeah, I think I think what Sophie's sort of illustrated is that although we come from these very, very different backgrounds, we we were both really passionate about finding a solution to this. I think um, this is probably a piece of work. So first of all, to say we hadn't seen anyone else um, really tackle this question head on, this very simple question of how do we get this cheap or free electricity for lower income households? We hadn't seen many people addressing it. And I do think how looking back, you know, we'd done our, we'd, we'd um, completed our, our first piece of work together, the Joy of Flex, which looks much more at, you know, how do we make sure that household level flexibility, um, which will be the biggest potential source of flexibility by 2030. So this is why we focus on households. It's, it's, it's huge. Europe needs um, household demand to be flexible. So we we looked in this first paper at household level demand flexibility. How do we create the value, make sure the value is coming from the markets? And then how do we enable households to make sure they can respond to those value signals and actually move their demand? So we completed that piece of work. And then when there was this, there was this big question in both of our minds, which we were really passionate about. Okay. We know people are going to benefit for this, but but how about the lower income households? And so I think, you know, it, going back to our collaboration, how it worked, the challenges we had was um we were both driven by the passion that we really wanted to answer this question. And we did bring these kind of complementary um, perspectives, me very much from the kind of household level and from the, you know, assets in buildings. What technologies do we need in the buildings to enable people to move their demand? And, and Sophie very much from the kind of energy systems point of view and, and you know, what tariffs and offers are, are people being exposed to? So I think it's really complementary, unique perspectives. <laughs> On the other hand, it wasn't always easy. Um, I mean, we we speak slightly different languages, honestly. <laughs> so I think there was a lot of kind of translating for each other, a lot of kind of introducing each other to different networks and stakeholders as well, which was really, really important because a big part of this project was obviously listening to other people piecing together from the existing work. I think the other thing, and I and I would just reflect on this kind of more broadly when I work with a lot of colleagues across RAP um, to bring the kind of energy justice perspectives, is that it's really challenging. We work in very complex environments already and complex topics to do with the energy transition. When you layer onto that a kind of deep consideration of, of different household um, groups in, in vastly different situations with vastly different needs in different countries across Europe, and there's basically a huge amount of extra complexity and uncertainty. And that's... Um, it's deeply unsettling for people who are kind of used to being experts in their field. So I think there was this kind of need, I think, to kind of build a lot of trust. And uh, as I say, it was, it was really just, I think, our, our passion for the for answering the question, or at least in, in part answering the question that, that drove us to a, a very successful collaboration. Yeah, that's that's really super inspiring also because, uh, I mean, I've been also involved in projects related to demand-side flexibility. And sometimes my role has been just to ask questions. How do you how do you plan on making that happen for the real people? And I remember this project I was working on in uh, in in Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso. It was really about demand side flexibility, and you know, in developing countries, it makes a lot of sense because it allows to make the most out, uh, out of the grid. And contrary to uh, the uh, example in Texas that we mentioned earlier, it's uh, the peak of uh, energy consumption is in the summer. 
So you have basically a lot of people who use their um, their uh, air conditioning uh, at the same time. So it creates a lot of uh, pressure on the grid and the grid collapses and you have like a um, shortage of electricity for hours, etc. Whereas if you try to to implement at least a few areas of demand side flexibility, you uh, can make sure that um, there is less blackouts, uh, at least for a certain amount of time. So it's really um, in that in those contexts, it's also, and I think that's one of the things we should really acknowledge is that demand side flexibility by allowing electricity to go where it's needed can be a question of life or death for for certain categories of the population. And, um, you know, one of the uh, really key uh, features of, of of my intervention in, in that project was to recall my colleague that if you say that you're going to install a device to control somebody's consumption, nobody will want it. And instead, if you use a certain approaches that are more collaborative, if you use the term monitor instead of control, people feel they have more leverage and more agency and they become part of the solution and they are way more willing to engage in in a kind of pilot if it's natural at the national level. So uh, I see you both nod. Uh, I mean, um, I know our listeners can't uh, see you, but you both nod. So I would really, really like to have your uh, like uh, your viewpoint uh, really on this and on some kinds of um, really practice that like something maybe that uh, that you learned from from each other about uh, that really surprised you like one or two takeaways that you both have from each other uh, experience well just the subject of control I think is really central to this whole thing because some people will say Oh, just automate everything and then all of the problems go away and then people won't be running around turning things on and off and there's an access issue but also as you say people want to be in control this is how people operate in their homes and that's one interaction that Louise and I've had in terms of like what are we aiming for here are we just aiming to sort of do no harm, like meet their energy transition goals in a way that doesn't make things worse? Or are we actually trying to make things better for people and actually try and close a gap between the rich and the poor in, in this energy transition? And I think that's one key difference between the sort of social justice, energy poverty world that Louise comes from and the energy markets world that I come from. We only, you know, only really in the energy crisis um in the last few years have started thinking about uh, energy justice as being a market's problem it's the what i was told from as a competition lawyer is that our aim is to minimize the overall costs of the transition through competition and then the social policy will kick in and the difference between different customers will be dealt with sort of outside the market but that's not really our job we just need to not mess things up so the the role of the invisible hand uh, somehow uh, needs to be needs to be oriented in certain directions. Louise, <laughs> what surprised you the most, really? I think perhaps the the, the most interesting 
the outcome or the learning from uh, from this work from me, and this is de- definitely something that Sophie's background brought, was was just exactly who we can look to to be these kind of intermediaries. Intermediaries is not a particularly fun word, but it's sort of the people that or the organisations that a householder engages with in order to get the value of their flexibility, get paid or get whatever other other benefit. And I suppose from my perspective, I've always thought about um, energy suppliers, you know, the person we, we pay for our energy, that's usually who gives us our tariff and that's usually been our way in, you know, our, our main route. And I think what Sophie really did and, and challenged me to do was to, to think broader than that, to think, you know, actually the energy suppliers are, of course, a really, really essential, important stakeholder, but then they're not the only gatekeeper. You know, we have lots of different organisations now entering into this world and they are you know innovative organizations they are um perhaps going back to your point about kind of the trust and the way that we communicate you know they're perhaps more trusted organizations than ones that have different ways of communicating with uh, individual householders just give one example of kind of what i mean by that. there's a an organization in in that started in ireland is, is spreading now called energy cloud and they have what i sort of see as as the maybe the most simple sort of model of of illustrating the power of flexibility to reduce energy poverty and they basically noticed that there was a lot of wind blowing at night in Ireland. <laughs> and because there wasn't much demand um, for electricity at night, a lot of that wind was being curtailed. It was being kind of shut off and wasted. This is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Not only is that then, you know, making the investment model in wind not look so good because some of your potential is not being realised, but also we've got lots of electricity that we could be sending to people who need it. So whilst noticing that, on the other side, they also noticed that actually there are a lot of existing electricity storage devices in homes in the form of um, water tanks in homes that, are, that have electric heating coils in them. So they noticed there were you know, tens of thousands of these in Ireland. And if they could link up this electricity that's going free at night with heating up the water tanks um, of these households, then people could have free hot water. And so they set up a model to do this for social housing uh, tenants. And I think it's just such an interesting, very simple to understand model of how we can take the power of something that is very, very cheap, um, otherwise maybe wasted, and give it to um, lower-income households. But it's interesting that this was a different type of model of organisation, which I think goes back to the point that Sophie taught me, which is, you know, we do have many different innovative um, entrants now that we need to be kind of engaging with and listening to. Yeah, and some have uh, names that um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have never heard about, like uh, aggregators. I mean, maybe you have other names, but that's the first uh, one that comes to my mind. And and um, that's a whole new and different ecosystem somehow that kind of makes little sense for, for somebody who's just trying to switch their light on and off uh, to, to, to experience their daily activities and, uh, and uh, who just wants to stay, stay warm or cool or store their food or take a warm shower. Or... So it's really a, an additional layer of, of complexity, those, those actors. And it's, um, for me, it also feels that they have some form of responsibility that we of all that remains very very somehow very vague uh, and your paper comes at a point where we actually need to kind of kind of orient it a little bit their role and their responsibility towards towards everyday people i don't like 
to say households because uh, I mean there are so many different of, uh, type of households there. So it's really um, about trying to understand what their relationship with the with the everyday people will be, and also let's say mom and pop shop and any kind of of stakeholder at the end of the day who used not to think about electricity and now has to somehow be a little bit more, more proactive if they don't want to. So. What would be their role and how how could the system be shaped in a way? I mean, I'm talking about like policymakers, industry leaders, communities, like including energy communities. That's also a stakeholder that didn't exist so many years ago. So how do how what kind of role and responsibility do they have towards demons, fostering demand side responsibility, do you think? Uh, it's a really good question. I think um, I think although obviously the, this interface directly with the people um, is going to be really, really vital. And as you said, energy communities, aggregators, you know, different types of, of service providers, as well as utilities and, and energy companies will will be important in that in that group. It will take, I think, a, a broader stakeholder group. So obviously those um, organisations as being the interface um, will have huge responsibilities and have, have a real need, I think, to build a trusted relationship. And that's a really important part. I think regulation will be absolutely kind of necessary to put the guardrails around what people are able to be offered, because I think you're right, you know, what you said earlier about kind of, you know, people don't really want to feel they have the uh, um, control taken away from them. On the other hand, we we can't all be energy market experts. You know, not all of us want to be, you know, tracking spot prices and uh, modulating our home to follow. You know, we, I don't think everyone wants to be doing that. And, and I think it's completely un, uh, unrealistic to think they can. So I think there is going to be need to be a level of service provision that does all that for us. That takes, um, you know, our knowledge of our energy use and and kind of adapts it within kind of reasonable parameters. And those reasonable parameters, I think, are the things we need to really work hard on. So if I'm going to give over to you a level of control of, of my energy use or the energy uses that I feel are flexible, then I want to be able to put reasonable parameters around, you know, what I need back. I need the, you know, 18, 19 to 21 degrees in my home that I want. I don't want to be hotter than that or colder than that. I want my coffee, as Sophie explained, to be ready at 7.30 in the morning. These are the things I want. And actually how you create that for me, I, I'm not too bothered. So I do think regulation will be needed. And unfortunately, I think regulation is always a step behind innovation, isn't it? So I think regulation will be needed to kind of make sure that people are offered these parameters that are not reasonable, that, are, that don't kind of fulfil their needs and, and obviously maintain health and well-being. So, but I think beyond that kind of first level of, of the interface with the, with the household, there's a lot of other stakeholders that need will, will need to be engaged. I think we found um, three key points in our paper, three key elements that need to be worked on. One is the is the ability. So it's the assets, it's the technologies, it's the insulation of your home, it's the smart controls, the things that make it possible and easy to move large parts of your energy. The second one is these interfaces, these tariffs and services to make sure that they are user-friendly and, and we want to engage with them. And then the third one is the kind of policy level to make sure that our policy signals aren't asking for the wrong kind of flexibility. Um, because I think, you've, as you've already alluded, there are, there are risks in asking people to move their energy when they haven't been created the ability to do so. I think as Louise says, it's the needs is the missing piece of the of the puzzle a lot of the time. And because demand side flexibility has come from 
industry talking about factories we haven't really focused on sort of the, the personal and the sorts of storytelling that needs to be done there but when we talk about inclusive flexibility something can't be inclusive unless it actually meets needs so it's not just about getting loads of lower income households to sign up to dynamic tariffs or to other types of flexible tariffs that might not have as much price risk. It's also about whether those offers and services and technologies actually meet their energy needs and their lifestyle needs. And, you know, as you say, there's so many different types of households. There's so many different types of people. If you're a single parent with a child working shifts, you've got a different pattern, uh, consumption pattern, probably to a retired couple living at home, even though you might have the same income. So you can't even just separate these are lower income households. And so their needs look like this. There's a really great study um, by Energy Systems Catapult called Project Involve when they look at how technology innovation tends to focus on the early adopters and and their needs and at the really early stages of technology innovation what we call discovery stage which is where we actually look at what is the problem we're already shutting out huge parts of the of customers and we're not um, looking at the needs of everybody and then designing the technologies and services to meet their their needs or the lots of the pilot schemes that involve lower income households sort of give free technology to household technologies that weren't designed around them and when you actually look at the case studies there are controls that are then put in the attic of the house or nobody's explained how it's used so something might be automated but then it's not easy to override and th- that's exactly what needs to be regulated and monitored and I know you had Luca on talking about standards that's really important so in interoperability which is another another techie word but it just means that enabling lots of different third parties to come in and be able to plug their service and their technology in so that customers have as much variety as possible but also that needs to be combined with proper regulation to make sure that um People aren't being mistreated or missold products that are not going to actually meet their needs. And also the clarity, because just choosing a tariff in a service is going to become much more complicated. And we want it to be because that means it's going to be diversity in terms of meeting people's needs. But we need a way of, in the future, we could be able to use things like artificial intelligence to actually look at the customer's um their consumption patterns, their real data, and plug that into um, an algorithm that looks at all these different types of services and will tell you what you can save. Unless we have that open data and that interoperability and that safe, proper regulation, we won't be able to get to that point. So at the same time, it needs to get much more complicated behind the scenes, but much uh, more simple and user-friendly in terms of the customer interface. And, And that's really the huge challenge here. Yeah, as you suggested, it's about uh, like uh, the uh, behind the scene architecture so that uh, the the kind of system and approach is uh, genuinely inclusive uh, of of people's different backgrounds and expectations and also allows for all those benefits to happen in a way that is very seamless. Yeah, that is that is really easy. Um, sorry, I wasn't sure of, of this word, but uh, yeah, in a way that is easy and kind of uh, for no regret uh, approach. So um, now we are reaching the end of this really fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you really so much. I would I would just like to ask you if you have like a few 
two or three recommendations or things you would like really different stakeholders, uh, including policymakers, to to kind of embrace uh, to make uh, to make a flexibility and demand side response uh, happen for for the people. And so, talking about policymakers, I don't think they are the the only one taking the decision at the end of the day. So, uh, it's also about like the developers of service or product. What kind of recommendation would you have so that uh, flexibility becomes really mainstream, like everybody starts doing uh, yoga with their energy consumption. Um, yes, I like that concept. Uh, um, so I think um, I think being really intentional, and I think that's one of the um, very clear kind of recommendations that we make in the paper is is when we're trying to sort of procure flexibility for the energy system, you know, this is, I think, unfortunately, still the way we're thinking about it. And actually, that's not the right way to think about it. We obviously need to be thinking about enabling first, making it a no-brainer, no regrets, as you've said. So I think being really intentional intentional about which kilowatt hours we are procuring and and really understanding how and where they are generated. So I think that's the first thing, kind of being clear. And we do set out in the paper, maybe so if you'll touch on this, um, some sort of some principles basically for sort of outlining what's good flexibility and maybe what's bad flexibility because bad flexibility is people further rationing energy. Let's be clear about that. There is a risk that if we give people these kind of price signals, particularly if they can't avoid those price signals, then, you know, then then there's a further further rationing risk. So I think really being absolutely intentional, you know, listening to the social scientists, listening to the studies that sort of tell us about people's real needs, people's real barriers, people's real experiences. That's the first thing um, I think I, I would say. And and I think the second thing is it really is just what Echo um, Sophie was just saying around designing to be inclusive. Let's design not just for those early adopters, those kind of, you know, generally more affluent people who have money to spend because that's where the early markets are. Um, let's actually design for a broader set of people who, you know, who aren't those early adopters. So then actually we have better possibility to penetrate a full market and open up to everyone. So those would be my kind of headlines, maybe from the bottom down and then from, sorry, the top down and then the bottom up yes absolutely as we said we're not we don't have a in, in policy terms we don't have a vision for what inclusive flexibility looks like and so when we're talking about good flexibility bad flexibility let's instead of just having lots of barriers which is what we currently have um let's actually turn that on its head and think about well, what do we actually need to aim for then we're at a really important juncture in, in energy markets design and we've just had the 55 package so buildings transport systems and energy markets are all changing in order to enable flexibility how we uh, and when we use energy is going to increasingly determine our bills rather than just how much we use. So the policy background is evolving, it's accelerating, and we need to make sure that the products and the services um, can keep up with the pace. We can't wait. In normal technology adoption, you can just, you know, if it's an iPhone or something like that, you can just wait, see if everybody catches up and it's not life and death, as you say, if they don't necessarily. Um, but with energy, we really need to make sure we, we can't just wait for the market to catch up. This is a critical juncture um, decisions made now in terms of whether we prioritise inclusivity will determine how people experience energy in their homes and the bills they pay for generations to come. So it's about at the inception of flexibility, 
regulatory regimes that are being introduced as a result of the clean energy package and the new energy markets design, making sure that it's upheld as a standard. So we have a sort of a social standard for flexibility because the energy system doesn't see how this flexibility affects people. It only sees kilowatt hours. So that's why regulators, policymakers and service providers need to understand those metrics and we need to have a way of monitoring that and making sure that we're we're doing better um, in terms of the experience of flexibility. And that means that we're going to get more of this amazing flexibility for the system, lower costs for everybody, and we're actually going to get to net zero in a way that brings everybody with us rather than just having to keep subsidising bills to socialise our failure to bring everybody with us. And if I may, just just to be really clear on uh, uh, getting these last few points is that in the paper, we do set out our uh, beginnings of the kind of principles that we think should be behind this sort of inclusive flexibility. And we created four principles. This is early on in this narrative. It's early on in this in this conversation. So we'd be really interested, you know, over time to kind of hear other people's reflections on these. So well, I'm keen to air them. So the four are that flexibility, it needs to open up the benefits to the people that most need them. This is this was our starting point. You know, this, this cheap electricity very simply needs to go to people who need it. The second one is that the, the way that we achieve this flexibility must be easy and stress-free for households. So not waking up in the middle of the night to do something. The third one is that we must procure flexibility in a way that enables energy savings and bill savings, but without sacrificing any comfort. Really important that we maintain our energy services at at adequate levels. And then the fourth one, which is really important to me, actually, is that the flexibility offers work alongside existing social safeguards and bill support. So, for example, if I'm benefiting from a social tariff, which means I get slightly lower electricity prices, but I want to then also offer my flexibility value into the system, I shouldn't have to give up that safeguard of my my social tariff. So I think that kind of working alongside building packaging good on good (laughs) um, to give people the full benefits of the transition or as many of the benefits of the transition as possible. These are the four principles that we set out and we're really kind of very interested to get um, more feedback on that as this conversation develops. Yeah, so uh, to our listeners, please engage with uh, Louise and, and Sophie on social media. They are really, really active. I mean, I would be really interested in uh, if, for instance, energy communities were already implementing some kind of uh, demand-side flexibility uh, for for their, um, uh, let's say, uh, members, uh, How what kind of benefit it could have. Also in terms of, of revenue, as you said, there is, um, I mean, and, and recently we had a conversation about flexibility more like at, at a let's say, industrial level, how to deliver flexibility at a more like a yeah, professional level. And that was really interesting because there is this dimension of, of financing and value, which is always like the one of the, let's say, biggest elephants in the room. Like uh, the money needs to go where where actually where it benefits the most and not uh, not only makes uh, the people's richest. And that's the principle of, uh, of energy justice and, and climate justice in general. So, um, yeah, this this podcast is really uh, definitely about, about these topics. But uh, Louise and Sophie, thank you so much. I give you uh, 30 seconds each if you want to add one more thing. Yeah, so for me, it's all about the, the combinations, the, the bringing together of different things. And you've mentioned energy communities, and that's a really good example because you've sort of already overcome the aggregation hurdle there. Um, and you already have that social cohesion and that trust element. So in a way, energy communities are already one step ahead. What we want to do is enable everybody to have that. And so in the 
as Louise mentioned, we've got these four principles of inclusive flexibility, and then we've got these three key steps that Louise has went through. And the last one is a retail runway to flex. So, and it, the social protection, sort of making sure that we can blend that with retail markets that Louise talked about is one of those things. But you can also include different types of, of assets together so that we can have batteries plus solar and also energy efficiency, because we are already in a programme of upgrading buildings with energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is the original flexible asset. If you've got an energy efficient home, you're already more able to act in a flexible way than other homes. And so thinking creatively about how we can bring different stakeholders together that wouldn't otherwise and know that their goals are actually aligned and so that we can combine those offers and services and, and choice in a way that's more coordinated, which means bridging the gap between the building sector, the transport sector and the energy market sector, which often operate in silos at a policy level. Louise, your certificates? I think if I could echo one thing, I think it's just this real need for the flipping in mindset so that we are approaching um, all of our work. I would extend, I would go as far as to say in the energy transition to think um, first about the needs of lower income households to, and, and, and addressing these structural inequalities that we know are there, which lead to people not at, managing to access um, energy, not managing to afford their energy. And that means through our subsidy programmes, through our policies, through our innovations, let's start always with the lower income households. And, and we cannot underestimate how much of a mindset shift that is because too often we are still looking at you know supporting the top of the market first to grow the market and then eventually everyone else will benefit and I think we can take one thing in a way that's really transferable it is that point. Thank you so much uh, Louise Sunderland and Sophie Urbanet it's been so interesting and so fascinating Um, I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with your next report on uh, how that uh, translates into reality maybe for in a couple of years Uh, thank you so much and have a good day Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Energetic. It's been a pleasure diving deep into the world of sustainability and the just energy transition with some of the most forward-thinking mouths out there. I'm Maureen Connellis, your host from Policy Consultancy Next Energy Consumer, and it's been an incredible journey growing this podcast together with you, our knowledgeable and passionate listeners. Since 2021, we've shared countless stories, insights, and ideas over more than 40 episodes, and it's all thanks to your support and enthusiasm. If you've enjoyed our journey so far and want to help us keep the conversation going, why not support us on Patreon? Every bit helps us bring more inspiring content your way. Check out the show notes for the link. And hey, if you're a part of an organization that shares our passion for a sustainable and inclusive energy future, we're excited to explore sponsorship opportunities with you. It's a fantastic way to connect with a dedicated audience and make an even bigger impact together. Shout out to the fantastic Igor Mihailovich from Podcast Media Factory for his incredible sound design work, making every episode a joy to listen to. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Energetic on your favorite podcast platform. And if you think a friend or a colleague could benefit from our episode, we'd love for you to spread the word. It helps us grow and keep the energy transition conversation alive. Sharing is caring. Follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to stay engaged and update on all things energetic. Thanks once again for lending your ears. Until next time.